Liberty Solutions here. We are a no whining allowed show on what the people can actually do about today's problems. Who decides, you or a DC career politician surrounded by marble and money? We like facts, so caution out to prisoners of their own drama. There's logic here. As Mark Twain said, politicians in diapers need to be changed often and for the same reason. Hi, Keith here. Today's episode is on the national debt and the yearly deficits. We have guest Nicholas Giordano, professor of political science at Suffolk County Community College in New York. He's a former catastrophic planning lead for the New York State Office of Emergency Management. He teaches courses on American government, world politics, and international relations. Professor Giordano has appeared on Fox News to provide analysis on current issues, trends within the government, politics, international relations, homeland security, emergency management, and social cultural related issues. Welcome, Nick. Thank you for having me. So we want to think about the national debt. I hear it's up to like 22 trillion now. About approaching 23 trillion. Uh, one more, one more. You know, what's another month or two? Yeah, right. It's another trillion dollars. I was looking at some graphs of, you know, watching the, the climbing debt. Uh, and, you know, the, you hear this common argument, you know, well, we vote this guy in, vote that guy in, then it'll go up or down. But I look at the line, it just seems to be steadily going up. Yeah, it doesn't matter about Republicans or Democrats uh, at this point. They just continue to spend taxpayer money at will, and they have no regard for the debt. You know, Republicans campaigned for years. I mean, that's essentially how they won back the House and the Senate, campaigning for years about being more fiscally responsible. And yet when they had the executive branch and both houses in the legislative branch, spending still increased dramatically. Yeah, I saw, I was looking at a website that said, uh, showed you could look up your representative and see what their vote was. There's only two in the whole House of Representatives that have voted for less money the whole time they've been in office. It's rare. Out of, uh, what's 525 or something? How many? 435 in the House and then 100 in the Senate. Yeah, so there's two. (laughs) It's crazy. And, you know, it's one of those things where people don't realize that sooner or later it will catch up to us. We're spending $389 billion a year just in interest alone. So eventually the interest is going to be, that'll be the biggest expense, right? Like at some point that has to happen. As of right now, it's 7% of our entire federal budget. And within the next five years, it's slated to go up to 15% of the entire federal budget. I mean, think about it. It's going to almost it's going to double the interest payment. And so you're talking about over seven hundred billion dollars just in interest alone. That's more than our entire Defense Department. It's more than the Defense Department. Uh, Correct. Also more than Social Security and Medicare. Like it's well, they're going to go bankrupt anyway, so don't worry about them. (laughs) But (laughs) not not to go down that rabbit hole. But so if that becomes the biggest expense, um is that the beginning of the end? Like, like something has to happen. Something has to change then, right? Or the, or the government goes bankrupt? We could sustain the debt for the next couple of decades, but there is going to come a point relatively soon. I mean, we're not talking, you know, 50 years down the road. We're talking about 20 years down the road. Well, we're going to have to figure it out. And the stupidity of the politicians is that you could either make the small changes now So I'm someone that argues, you know, do a 15% across the board cut in every government department and agency, every program, 15% cut. 
because you have a choice. You could either make 15% cut now where everyone's going to have to sacrifice a little bit, or you're going to have to gut entire programs in the next 20 years in order to just service the debt. Like it's going to be, if, if they wait, if they don't do something along the lines of like a 15%, it's going to be catastrophic. Like some catastrophic Correct. thing is going to happen. Well, then you're going to have to make hard decisions. So instead of, let's say, cutting financial aid programs, you're going to have to decide whether you need to gut the entire financial aid program. You know, and that's the problem that people don't realize. They think right now, well, 15% cuts are too much, which I think actually 15% is just waste. They just cut out the waste. It's not really going to affect any of the programs. But they don't realize that we're going to have to choose what programs we're going to gut entirely in the next 20 years if we don't make these cuts now and start getting back to a path of fiscal responsibility. When, when they only look at you know the next election or maybe the one after that, uh, 20 years doesn't scare them, I don't think. They're, they're not concerned about 20 years, right? Well, they should be because a lot of them spend lifetimes in offices, <laughs> which is a different story for a different day. But, yeah. you know, it, it's something that as an elected official, you have a certain responsibility. And it's your job to temper the expectations of the citizenry and provide realistic solutions. It's also your job to actually use taxpayer money in a responsible way. So they should be concerned about it. And most aren't because they think, well, I won't be in office in the next 20 years, or the economy will grow so much that it will take care of the debt itself. And they don't realize that what they're strapping the next generation with. You know, they don't say they don't care, you know, because they're not going to be there in 20 years. But uh, you think that is actually true of a lot of them, probably. It's kind of speculating about what people think, which is hard to do, but it seems that way. But it's actually easy. And I I don't really think it's speculation. If they cared, they wouldn't be proposing these massive spending increases in all these different areas. You know, if you look at a lot of uh, presidential candidates now, they're talking about health care for everyone. They're talking about education for everyone. They're talking about even, you know, programs for illegal immigrants. So obviously they have no regard for the debt. Obviously they don't care about the debt because if they did, where are we getting all this money to pay for those uh, programs that they're proposing? Republicans are the same thing. They'll always say, well, we need to increase spending in security. We need to increase spending in defense. Well, where are you getting that money if you're not t- doing spending cuts in other areas? It's not like you know the, they try and offset the spending increases. They don't. Some Republicans call for it, but they'll still vote on whatever budget is presented. It, you know that when you listen to them talking, like they're all happy, they're proud of this new budget. Was it four point seven trillion somewhere around there? Um, and it, yes, four point seven, right? So correct. So the, the the Republicans say they're this is great. And the Democrats say this is great. So it's like the one thing they agree on is spending $4.7 trillion. Like that's a, that's a bipartisan view, right, of the majority. Well, it is. And Americans should be aware that through tax revenues and the fees generated by the United States, we're only taking in about $3.7 trillion to $3.8 trillion each year. So you're talking about running trillion-dollar deficits for the next two years. That's a, that's a lot of money. You know what they say, what's the joke? A trillion here and a trillion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. But the scary part is that that doesn't even count the unanticipated expenses that we're going to be facing. You know, let's just say we have another year where we have uh, hurricanes. You know, just a couple of years ago, you had Texas. Two weeks later, Florida got hit. Then Puerto Rico got hit. 
well, that's going to call for additional spending. What happens if, uh, you know, God forbid something happens with Iran and we engage in a military conflict with Iran? Well, that's not factored into the budget. And so that's going to cost money. And that's the thing that people don't realize is that this is just the opening salvo of the budget to $4.7 trillion. It can likely end actually much higher than $4.7 trillion. And, and we're talking about a case where we're supposedly at peace, not counting the seven or so wars that are going on, but <laughs> uh, depending on how you count, seven or ten. Um, but we're supposed to be at peace, and the economy is supposed to be booming, and interest rates are like, you can round it off to zero or one, and, and they're still spending this much money. you know. And, and they're, the, the budget this year and the, and the new uh, budget is $750 billion for the military, like, and we're not even at war. I saw that that's more than the average of the Cold War from the 50s all the way through the 80s. Like next well, year's budget's bigger, adjusted for inflation's bigger than the Cold War average. When we had the Soviet yeah. Union and the Vietnam War. Like is the well, problem with the Iran? Part. Yeah, it seems crazy to me. Is the problem it with is. Iran worse than the one fa- we face with the Soviet Union? No, and Iran would be catastrophic getting into a war with Iran. People don't realize the unintended consequences that could exist from that. But it's just the the whole thing. And and taxpayers also have to bear some responsibility in this because we don't hold our politicians accountable. They keep voting. Everybody says, oh, they're going to give me money. Well, that's the thing. And once government programs are in place, it's very difficult to get rid of those government programs. If you look at the Affordable Care Act, it's the best example. 70% of the American people were against the Affordable Care Act. Throughout the Obama administration, throughout his time in office, people despised the Affordable Care Act. And then they voted in Republicans, then they voted for Donald Trump. And the whole mantra was repeal and replace, that we're going to remove the Affordable Care Act. We're going to take it away from Then all of a sudden, the American people liked it. Then the numbers actually flipped, and now 60% of the people actually approved of the Affordable Care Act, and uh, 40% of the people were against it. And so once you put these government programs in place, it's very, very difficult to take it away from the people. And the mismanagement of these programs is astounding, because what are you really getting for your money? And that's what I always ask, the cost versus benefit analysis. You know, we spend more on education if we combine the 50 states and the federal government than almost every country combined. Yet our education system, the student performance, continually drops each and every year in the rankings internationally. So it's not like we're even getting a good bang for our buck. It's not like we're producing all these little Einsteins everywhere. If you look at our roadways, we're spending more on roads than ever before. And yet the roads are in worse shape. Our infrastructure is in worse shape than ever before. So where's all the money going? Nobody asks that question. As taxpayers, we should hold the politicians accountable by asking these questions. They, they don't manage it well, and, and they don't run anything like a business, even, even though Trump says he's a businessman, but a, a businessman wouldn't spend $4.7 and borrow a trillion of it when, when it's $22 trillion in debt already. No, and listen, I, I don't abuse government. I, I don't you know, criticize government for not operating as business because they're not supposed to be a business. Our founders created this government to be slow and awkward and inefficient. It's the exact opposite of a business. A business, you want efficiency. But our government's extraordinarily complex, and it's designed that way on purpose to prevent the government from becoming abusive, from gaining more power. However, the government has figured out by using money, it could still gain this power, and it does mismanage the funds. And Baltimore is a great example of this 
because of the outrage between President Trump tweeting about Baltimore and how horrible uh, Baltimore City is. And then when we look at the numbers, you know, Baltimore, West Baltimore and East Baltimore, they are suffering. Their infrastructure has collapsed. The education system has collapsed. It is rodent infested. And yet they received something like $15 billion over the course of the last two years. But what did they do with that money? For $15 billion, they should have been able to rebuild the entire city. And yet there's investigations going on into the mismanagement of those funds. There's money that can't be accounted for. And it's really, you know, it doesn't take all that much logic to figure out what's going on in Baltimore. I mean, it's a terribly corrupt government and uh, a lot of people are wealthy. Yeah, and then you see the representative, Elia Cummings, is his name. He's complaining about the, the immigrants coming across the southern border. We have to fund them. Like, tell him to go home and clean his own room. Well, exactly, and that's the point. I mean, you know, I, I don't know the number off the top of my head. I want to say it's something like um, $3,000 per month to take care of these asylum seekers, the refugees that are coming across the border. 3000 per person per month. That's an extraordinarily bill that we're facing, and yet we can't even take care of our own backyard. You know, I live in the New York area. I'm from Long Island. The roads are terrible here. There's better roads in Kabul, Afghanistan, than there are here in the United in New York. It is horrible. You can't go down a road and not hit a pothole. Yeah, I don't mean to laugh at that, but... Yeah, I believe it. Um, I was in New York City in the fall. Uh, and, and in Baltimore, you know, I'd looked up some numbers because people were talking about, you know, well, these people that are coming in seeking asylum, I mean, it's in the single digit percentages that they actually accept. Most of them come and say, well, yeah, my husband beats me. Well, well that, you don't get political assignment for that. Or it's violent. I'm from a violent, torn country. And the example he used on the news was, uh, he talked about El Salvador. And I looked it up. It turns out the the... The uh, murder rate per, per capita in Baltimore is worse than El Salvador. Like, like mm-hmm. the people in West Baltimore would qualify for asylum under Alia Cummings' demand. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. And the, the ironic part is that we're going to take these asylum seekers and the refugees and we're going to put them in the communities that are already having the problems, that don't have the resources and capabilities to take care of this new population because they can't even take care of the population they have. It's not like we send the refugees and asylum seekers to the elite wealthy zip codes. God forbid we do that. I think President Trump should do an executive order sending all these people to the elite zip codes that can take <laughs> care of them, that do have the money and the resources. That would be entertaining at, as a minimum. <laughs> I think you solve the immigration crisis because then all these people that come out and say we have to accept everyone will just quickly change their tune. I mean, you know, yeah. they'll say, well... Yeah, we have to accept everyone, but don't put them in my area. Don't put them in my well, area. Yeah, don't put How them in my children. Your, or your couch. Yeah, I, t- I like to think of, you know, take things all the way down to the individual because I think about individuals. So, like, somebody that says they want to open borders, they say, well, do you ever lock your house? Like, do you let a Guatemalan who doesn't speak a word of English and doesn't have a job and only knows how to pick crops sleep on your couch and watch TV and you're going to feed them every night? Because if you don't yeah. say yes to that, then you're not being rationally consistent. No, they're not. And they're saying, well, it's a different story. You're talking about government on one level. You know, I'm an individual person. I have my own struggles in life. And I, you know, but they're they're all hypocrites. Every single one of them. And I think it's part of human nature to be hypocritical, to do as I say, but not as I do. So I don't necessarily blame people for that, but we should be aware of how hypocritical we could be. You know, I've seen on college campuses, you know, younger people are the 
their biggest issue is climate change. That's what they're always fighting for. And yet you'll see them just throwing stuff on the floor. You'll see them have no regard for their own being. They'll make messes. A lot of the younger generation do smoke marijuana. Marijuana is the most climate unfriendly crop there is because of the amount of water it consumes. And yet most of them don't even know that. So we don't realize how hypocritical we are. We all claim we care about human rights. Yet we buy products each and every day that were produced by people that are getting their human rights abused. But we won't think about that when we're purchasing the product. We'd rather achieve product than we don't want to know how it's made. So I think being hypocritical is part of human nature, but it, it gets aggravating when you have these so-called elites, the political class, the establishment class, the Hollywood elites that dictate to us that we're bad people because we question this. We're bad people because we question things like the debt. We're bad people because we question all the refugees and the asylum seekers. We're bad people because we question the conditions that are going on in our urban centers throughout the United States and how they do have a worse murder rate than some of the most violent countries that exist out there. And that's what I get annoyed at. Yeah, when p people look at, the, look at the border and say, well, if, you're, if you just ask a question like, can we afford to pay for all these people? They start saying, you're a racist. You don't care about people. You hate children. Like, no, that's not what I said. <laughs> I said, where's the money going to come from? You know, and, and but then they say, well, we don't care. How, well, they how do say you... that the United States is the wealthiest country in the entire world. And they're right about that. We are the wealthiest country to ever exist. There is no doubt about it. But there's limited money in the pot. <laughs> and you we're know? only a few percent of the world, right? Five percent or something. I forget the number. We're not that much in population. No, we're not, we're not we're, that much we're, in population. I think we're less than five percent. Yeah, seven, you know. seven billion, 325 million over 7 billion. That's Correct. a small number. It is. And so, yeah, we might be wealthy, but at the same time, if we go bankrupt, if we just keep spending the way we do, then we're just going to become a third world country sooner or later. That's, that's our roadway. That's our pathway. You're spending you know, we, like drunken sailors. We are. And the last three potentially four with president trump his administration's not over so we can't say for sure but at the very least the last three presidents have all increased the debt doubled the debt when they took office and a lot of people will point to president clinton they'll say well he had a balanced budget and he was generating a surplus but he still doubled the debt in his time in office in his eight years in office when he came into office the debt was at 2.5 trillion by the time he left office the debt was then at five trillion dollars so he generated a surplus for the last two years, but he didn't pay down the debt or anything. When President Bush came into office, the debt was $5 trillion. When he left office, the debt was $10 trillion. When President Obama came into office, the debt was $10 trillion. When he left office, the debt was $20 trillion. God help us if President Trump, he came in with $20 trillion. God help us if he leaves with $40 trillion in debt. He, he's on track for that if he gets two terms, right? Three. As of right, I don't know the exact numbers, but he wouldn't be far off from that. Or maybe, maybe half of that, thirty trillion. It, it's it's one. They're talking about one point one trillion for next year. It was one trillion last year, and I think somewhere in the point eight or point nine trillion the year before, somewhere in there. Like and like it, that's more than Obama's numbers. And that's bad point. It's not necessarily that I blame Trump or President Obama. Bush because Congress is the one with the power of the purse. They're the ones that develop the budget. They're the ones that are going to be spending the money. That's when we actually start to have a problem.
So I understand, you know, print is limited. They send what they want to see the spending levels at, they'll send Congress. And then Congress pretty much throws away whatever the president sends them and develops their own budget the way they see it. Well, and it is Congress that's supposed to be doing the budget. The president's not even supposed to submit a budget. He's just supposed to make suggestions. So with the students, when you, uh, at, at the university, it's uh, SUNY, right? It's, it's a SUNY, SUNY's SUNY? college. Um, did they understand that the debt is on them when we borrow a trillion a year and on average? No. no, a lot of them live in their own little bubble, and they don't realize. Once we get into the numbers, they start to see. But when you tell a student we're $22 trillion in debt, when you tell most Americans, I don't care if they're young or old, that we're $22 trillion in debt, their eyes kind of gloss over at it. I think it's so large of a number that people don't even – pay attention to it at this point. But when I begin to write it on the board, and one of the things that I, I make sure I go through with my students is what they want. So, okay, if you want a universal health care system, here's what it costs, where are you getting money for it? And, and I try and make them find the money. Then they start to realize how difficult it is to actually get the programs they would want and actually pay for those programs. So conceptually, and they understand the question when you, when you write it out. They do. And I do relate it to the average person. I mean, it's nothing more than the, just thinking about credit card debt. I mean, most Americans live on credit card debt. And the reason that Americans get into financial problems is because they'll spend on the credit cards and they'll be able to make the minimum payments for a time being. But sooner or later, it continues to grow, the debts. And the minimum payment gets higher and higher. And that's the way I relate it that there comes a point where you can't even afford to pay the minimum payment. And what happens then? Then you face financial collapse. And that's the way I try and relate it to the United States because it's the same concept. Yeah. You know, we're making minimum payments in the $389 billion a year. Those minimum payments are increasing each and every year. And there's going to come a point in time where we're not going to be able to cover those minimum payments. And if we're going to make it and cover those minimum payments, we're going to have to cut entire programs, as I said earlier, that's going to have a, a drastic impact on our lives. Not only our lives, but our economy as a whole. I mean, you have to understand, and, and the viewers need to understand, that this government supports an enormous amount of federal employees. Not only federal employees, it supports an enormous amount of contractors. And so it all is together. What happens when we have to cut programs and then lay off these federal employees or lay off the contractors? Then you have companies that relied on these contracts going out of business. Then you have higher rates of unemployment. And it becomes really complex because now people are unemployed. They're going to receive unemployment benefits. They're also not going to be pumping money into the economy. And that's how our economy is driven. It's a consumer-driven economy. It's good because we buy stuff. If we stop buying stuff, the economy begins to tank. And so it's almost like this perfect storm that's brewing. Like it's, it's going to come down. And I like looking at it as a credit card. I think it's easier to understand because a trillion, like it's hard to picture what a trillion is. Like, like that's a, such a huge number. I don't, want to, I don't even want a billion. What's a billion? What's a, a lot of zeros. It's a lot of zeros, you know. I mean, I know, you know, I can think about it ahead. I'm an engineer. So, yeah, I know what a terabyte is and a gigabyte. 
So when I try to think about the difference between a megabyte and a gigabyte and a terabyte in dollars, like, I go, oh, geez, like, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of money. So scaling it, like, especially, you know, scaling it down to credit card is, is a good way to do it. Like, you, if you just scale the numbers, you take a family that makes, just use 100000 uh, is their annual salary uh, for the family, and they have a credit card debt that's 106000 right? The national debt's yep. 106%. So they have a credit card debt that's 106000 and then they decide to take a vacation for $25,000 and, like, take a cruise ship around the world with, the, with all the kids. <laughs> and uh, then the parents just say, well, we'll just pay the, the minimum on it until we die, and now you kids can, can pay that vacation off. And yeah. the other 106000 that you owe. Well, but that's the thing. That's the analogy. And, and that all works, right? I think I do that right. Absolutely. That, that's exactly the way it is. And that's easier you know, to understand, right? Like I can understand that easier, let alone a college student. Yeah. But when a, a person goes bankrupt, it's okay. It screws up that person's life, but it doesn't affect me. When our country goes bankrupt, well, that's going to have a dramatic impact on my life, my kid's life. But not only that, it has a dramatic impact on the entire world. I mean, we're the sole superpower of the world. And our economy pretty much runs this world. And if our economy collapses, the world economy. Look at uh, 2007. One sector of our economy collapsed, the housing market. That's one sector, one small sector of our economy, and it triggered a global recession. I mean, think about that. What would happen if it's something worse than that that triggers a global depression? Like the whole U.S. economy. Exactly. It would. It would trigger a global depression. It seems like it would. I don't mean to predict the future. That's got a poor track record. But, it, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, uh, that's a good example. And they, but it and, doesn't have that much poor of a track record because we know that when economies collapse, we know that wars begin. We know that. Um, time and time again, we've seen that. Yeah, uh, wars are started to generate taxes. Generate taxes, try and provide faith in leadership to keep governments in power and to start scapegoating other people for the economic collapse. If you look at Greece several years back, Greece wasn't sitting there taking responsibility for its economy. It was blaming Germany and World War II and the occupation of uh, the Nazis in Greece for its economic conditions, what, 80, 70 years later? Yeah. That's you know, and, and that's what happens. So we'll use scapegoats to try and blame others. And, and it just it doesn't end well. History, you know, we, we've seen this happen before. So so what do you, you know, Greece? So one difference with Greece is uh, they're they're sort of based on the euro, right? Like they can't print their own money when they collapsed, but the U.S. can. So how do, how do you address the argument that? Well, you know, we would just print more money. You hear like AOC saying that. Like, like, could, like is, do, is a dollar really money if they can just print it? Well, that's the thing. You can print as much money as you want, but the value of the dollar will not be the value of the dollar. I don't even, I think the value of the dollar today is about uh, 60 something cents. It's not really worth a dollar anymore it, because of the money that we've printed. It's, and that's what people don't realize. When you, listen, 10 years ago, if, you went to a deli, you would be able to get a hero, uh, a, a soda, and a bag of chips for like six bucks, seven bucks. Now it's $12. Well, why do you think the prices have gone so high? And, and that's the thing. The cost of everything has increased dramatically. And it's because the dollar is no longer a dollar. 
Yeah, it's it's a few percent of what it was when the 1913 when the Federal Reserve started. Correct. So as we say, well, gold is money. I remember Ron Paul asking, uh, I think it was Ben Bernanke, one of the Federal Reserve chairmen, is gold money? And he, he, no, he said no. Well, I, I don't <laughs> so, know if I necessarily, I don't know if I agree or disagree with that. <laughs> it, it's valuable gold, and it can be used as a currency exchange. But I also don't like the idea of tying us to a gold standard because we saw the limits of that as well. You know, when economies begin to go down, people begin hoarding gold. And it's not going to be the average normal person that starts buying gold. It's going to be the people that could afford to buy the gold. And when you base it on the gold standards, well, gold is finite. And so there's only so much out there. And so it really ties the hands of governments and people and economies when you do attach to the gold standard. So, you know, the Federal Reserve, I want to see them audited. I'd like to see their books, see what's going on. I don't necessarily know if the right thing to do is to go to the gold standard. What I do know is the right thing to do is just we need to start becoming fiscally more responsible as a country. I think our politicians need to be held accountable and we need to start making sure that the money spent is spent wisely and that we start cutting the costs of the programs that we're running. You know, there's several solutions that do exist out there that we can provide. I mean, one of the things that I actually call for through the Article 5 Convention of States process is tying congressional salaries to the budgeting process. And see, this is the genius behind it. See, a lot of people call for a balanced budget amendment. I don't like balanced budget amendments. And the reason I don't like them is because every state has a balanced budget amendment and every state's in debt. You could still go into debt with a balanced budget amendment. My amendment... Whenever politicians talk about balancing the debt, the, the budget, and whenever presidents talk about balancing the budget, you ever notice they talk about it, well, in 10 years, we'll get to a balanced budget. They're talking about and, 15 right now, 2034. <laughs> We're going to balance it in 2034. Yeah. So these geniuses who are just completely incompetent will say in 10 or 15 years, we're going to balance a budget. So that means that we're going to run debts for the next nine to 14 years. We're going to run a deficit each and every year until we actually just become neutral. Well, in order to pay down the debt, we need to start generating a surplus. In addition, you can't predict, presidents only have at most eight years in office, four to eight years in office. And, and so how could a president sit there and say, well, in 10 years, we'll get to a balanced budget. Members of Congress are currently going, constantly going up for re-election. Okay, and it's constantly changing. And who could predict what's going to happen in 10 years? Nobody. Yeah, and so it, we, it's silly. We, it, we it's, could have an economic collapse. We could be in war. Who knows? So my amendment would tie the congressional salaries to the budget deficit. And it would say that Congress has to get the budget deficit neutral within three years. They have to come up with a balanced budget and meet those standards. If they fail to balance the budget within three years, then every year they run deficits after that, they get a pay reduction by 10%. Their pay will go down by 10%. Because I think what that does, it, it makes Congress have a financial stake in the process. It's no longer about spending other people's money. It's their money that's included in this. It's their livelihood that gets included with this. And so I think they'll be more responsible. Dude. And then guess what? If they generate a surplus, then we could talk about a 5% increase in their congressional salaries. And I'm fine with that. I'm okay with that. I have no problem 
giving Congress an increase in pay if they're doing the job that they're supposed to be doing. And let's face it, I think that type of amendment would have a much greater impact than anything else. Now, there would be two exceptions to the rules. There would have to be in order for this to be frozen, because there are times where our government is going to have to spend more than we're actually taking in, there has to be an actual declaration of war. None of this authorization to use force BS where you could be in a war for 19 years. You'd have to have an actual declaration of war, and then this amendment will be suspended during that declaration of war. Or there has to be a declared economic emergency that could suspend and allow us to run deficits and it won't affect congressional pay. Those would be the only two exceptions. And I think that that would have a, a much greater impact on the budgeting process than going to the gold standard or changing our entire financial system and how we do business. Another thing that we should do is have every program should be evaluated. I mean, one of the biggest problems in the bureaucracy is the waste, the fraud, and the abuse that's occurring. The programs lack efficiency, they're not effective, they're not meeting their goals and objectives. Every two years, every single government program should be up for review, not by congressional figures. It shouldn't be up for review by internal agency people. It should be independent orders that come in, look at the program, determine, determine whether it can meet its, its meeting its objectives, and if it's not meeting its objectives, well, then there's two options. They could either be put on a probationary period where they have two years to full come into compliance, or we scrap the program and we do away with that program. And I think that that would make a lot more sense because let's face it. I mean, corporations are constantly, aren't they constantly reevaluating every year their programs to make sure their programs are running at efficiency, to make sure that they're not wasting money. And and oh. their and their debt, they have to keep track of their debt. And the, the twenty two trillion to almost twenty three, uh, no business does accounting that way. If you use standard business accounting practices, the debt's two hundred trillion because you have to count unfunded liabilities. Like a, a business is not allowed to operate the way the federal government does as far as debt. No, they're not. <laughs> you can't do that. That's for sure. It's like saying you don't care about your retirees or something. So yeah, a business is. You know, if you look at the U.S. as a business, it's $200 trillion. And I agree with you what you said earlier, that it's not supposed to be a business. But the problem is they're engaging in, you know, wild guess, 80 90% of what they do is actually a business. They're treating it like a business. Yeah, well, once again, and when you're talking about taxpayer money, there does have to be some oversight in how that money is actually being spent. I'm sorry, if your program, so we have about 76, this is on the federal level alone. 76 alcohol and drug treatment programs at the federal level. 76. <laughs> Again, I'm Why sorry, do we have to have 76? That's not including all the state programs. It's not including the local programs. It's not including the nonprofits and the private sector programs that exist. And yet addiction rates are off the charts. They're at the highest levels that we've seen. So obviously the 76 alcohol and drug treatment programs at the federal level, obviously they're not working. Well, you know what the problem is? We need one more. We need 77. If well, we had exactly. 77, then everything would be great. And, well, and I'm going to run for argument, Congress on that. Or it's the argument that, well, we don't have the funding that we need. Oh, you need more money. You always need you more know, money. But I'll take education. Same thing with education. So we always hear that there's not enough money in education. As I stated earlier, we spend more than every country almost combined. And every year we increase education spending. It's not like we cut education spending. Every single year, education gets increases in spending. So every year we're spending more money in education. They make the argument that 
we don't have enough money in education and student performance is getting worse. Well, shouldn't student performance, even if it's not enough money, just by increasing the amount of funding it's getting, shouldn't it automatically go up a little bit at least? And it's not, it's actually getting worse student performance. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's where we look at, is government truly effective in its programs? And the answer is no. So let's do away with these programs where government's kind of becoming useless. If you look at the states, 25% of a state budget is reliant on federal funding, 25%. So can the states really conflict with the federal government? I mean, we have this system of federalism where we have two levels of government that are supposed to be independent of each other. They're not supposed to rely on one another. They're not created by each other. And yet the federal government has figured a way to essentially extort the states to do what it wants by providing them funding. And the states have gotten addicted to this funding where they need it. They can't do without 25% of their budget. So they become fiscally irresponsible too. So while we constantly talk about the $22 trillion national debt, don't forget all the states are in debt as well. I think North Dakota is the only one that's in good financial I don't shape. think Florida is either. I'll have to check that. But Florida does I'm not sure. budget. Um, but, but the point, I get the point that totally that the states are, are becoming branches of the federal government and people look at the government that way. They, you know, you ask the question, like, which came first, the states or the federal government to, to kids? And they say, oh, the federal government. Yeah. I mean, the federal government was formed and then they created the states. That's, that's what a lot of kids think. A lot of kids think, and I wouldn't say just kids. I think adults do too. I think that what we've done is almost we've nationalized everything. I mean, you know, every issue is now a national issue and people are constantly looking to the federal government to solve the problems where it should be the state and local governments. Take this idea of universal health care. I always make the argument. First of all, it's unaffordable. Be realistic. I don't think it's a good idea. That's my opinion. I've seen it fell in a lot of other places. But let's just say that we should move towards a universal health care system. Well, let California do it. They're the ones calling for it. So why doesn't California introduce a universal health care system in the state of California? Why change it for 329 million Americans? Because at least if you just do it for California and it fails, we didn't screw it up for the rest of the country. That's the whole point. There's supposed to be 50 experiments going on. Exactly. And if it succeeds, guess what? Other states will adopt it. Okay. But instead, we want to put everything in the federal government's hands. And I'm sorry, I don't want the federal government having power over my education, having power over my health care, having power over where I live, because then essentially the states are useless. And then you do have the nightmare of you have this central government with the totality of governing authority and it's ripe. It's open for abuses. So so do do students understand the, the real setup, like from a constitutional originalist point of view, as the states being the higher authority and, and telling them? After they take government? my class. <laughs> Good for you. I want to take your class. <laughs> it's after they take my class. When they get into it, they don't there's no distinction between the federal and state governments. That's that's great. When they get into my class, they're one and the same. Yeah. Once again, the education system has collapsed. The most students that come into my classroom, and it's not just my classroom. I speak to political scientists throughout the country. We're seeing this throughout universities across the United States and colleges where students are not coming in with the basic knowledge of understanding American government. They have no clue about the concept of the American government, why it was set up, what the founding fathers were looking to do, why they created a republic as opposed to a democracy. They don't understand. Most students think we are a democracy. They don't realize that we're a republic. 
And they don't realize that democracies are not necessarily a good thing, that democracies can be abusive, that you could have the tyranny of the majority. They've never read the Constitution, many of them, by the time they get into my courses. And it's a collapse of our education system. There's, there's no civics anymore. So now students, and, and if you look at the numbers, uh, many of the youth will actually have a negative opinion of the United States. You know, something like 48% don't view the United States as the most powerful country, as the greatest country in the world anymore. And the reason they don't is because most of the education about the United States that they're receiving is actually all the negative things that we've done in our history, whether it's the Trail of Tears with the Cherokee Indians, whether it's the slavery, whether it's segregation or Japanese internment camps or Agent Orange and things like Vietnam. Many of them will learn about all the horrible things that we've done, and they'll never learn the great things that we've done. They, they and they don't. won't even... They don't want to tell them, right? And, you know, grammar school and high school history. So I can, you know, I can imagine. I, you know, I read and hear about kids, and and I was the same thing. I went to a public school, and uh, when I went into college, I actually tell a little story. Uh, I took American History one hundred and one from a um, the professor. It was called government government politics. It wasn't political science. Government and politics was it. Uh, professor um, on the first day, he said. Uh, Forget about everything that you learned in grammar school and high school about American history, because it was really just to make you love your country. Now I think yeah. it's going to make you hate your country, but it's the same point. And he said, come in on Wednesday, and I'm going to start at the beginning and tell you what, what actually happened. That was eye-opening for an eight, me as an 18-year-old. I was like, oh, really? And, and well, it's scary. Was right. I think he was right. You know, it's scary. And one of the things that I tell my students is, you know, I just want everyone to think about this logically. Government and politics is probably the most important subject that you're going to be taking. So when I look at it, binomials and trinomials, I haven't done one since about 10th grade. <laughs> if, you, if you put a binomial in front of me today, I probably won't know how to solve that problem. <laughs> and government and politics, we don't make a requirement. In fact, most kids only get a half year of government their senior year in high school. And I'm like, think about that for a second, because every single job profession is regulated by government, is licensing requirements by government. You want to open up a business, who do you have to deal with? Government. You want to buy a home, who do you have to deal with? Government. You want to make improvements to your home, who you want to deal with? Government. You're on the roadways, who do you have to deal with? Government. I mean, every aspect of our lives involves government in some sort of way, and yet we don't make it a requirement here in the United States within the education system to learn about government. And I tell my students, you know, you have all these opinions on all these different issues. You don't even know how our government was set up. You don't know the institutions of government. You don't know the roles and responsibilities of those institutions. How can you say government should be doing anything if you don't know those things? And, and, and I they don't have an it, answer. And, you know, and I graduated high school in 78. So what the schools were doing then is totally different than now. I mean, they gave us yeah. a copy of the Constitution with our diploma. Like, like, we actually taught it. And I still didn't know when I went to college and took that class. But it was an elective. I didn't have to take that. My degree was ele my degree is electrical engineering. Like, there was no requirement to take history or politics or government or any of that. And but that's the, the scary thing. And, and he opened my eyes. I, you know, the, it was, uh, Paris Glendening was the professor. Um, I got to know him. I went after class a bunch of times at his office and talked to him. Uh, by the way, he uh, was a two-term governor of... Maryland later on. Oh, nice. But he, he never said that about what government schools do in high school when he was <laughs> I don't remember him saying that. 
But and the other political thing, which uh, is off topic slightly, um, you know, he was a young guy when I, when relatively young when I took took the class. Eighty, I was seventy eight, seventy nine, something like that. Um, so it was twenty years, twenty five years later, he became governor, um, and and I thought it was interesting because I didn't know what political party he was, and you know, and I talk to kids now. They talk about what they learned in college, like they're getting indoctrinated by their professors. And like, you know, I took a class on American a lot of history places. from a guy who totally opened up my eyes, and I didn't know if he was Democrat or Republican. Like when he ran for office for governor, I was like, oh, he's a Democrat. I didn't know that. He never well, and that's that. the way it's supposed to be because basically any position my student takes, I'm going to take the opposite position and I'm going to challenge them. So when it comes to conservative students, I'm going to take a more liberal position. When it comes to liberal students, I'll take a more conservative position. Because they shouldn't know where I stand on the issues. And whenever I give my students my opinion, I will let them know, hey, this is my opinion. It's not something that you have to agree with. Where other professors out there and other teachers will, their opinion is essentially fact. When it's not. That's what's going to be on the test, right? (laughs) Let's face it. Republicans don't have all the answers and Democrats don't have all the answers. I mean, both political parties have been in power at one time or another, and we're still debating the same issues today that we were 40 years ago. So if one party had all the answers, well, we would have solved the problem when they were in the power. And that's the thing. I try and challenge my students to have the, to think critically. That's great. Know, yeah. And they need to question hear the everything. So, so you give them the opposite point of view and make them think through their position. Correct. It, for, it forces you to, and it's always good. I mean, I, might ask you some questions like that. To, you know, it helps me think through it. It helps listeners think through the argument if they have to hear the other position. Sticking yeah, your well, fingers in your ear is not a good way to deal with opposing viewpoints. Even if you agree with the position, you should always question it. You know, I don't trust government for anything. I don't trust any members of Congress. Even if I agree with that member of Congress, it's my job to be skeptical. It's my job to ask questions. It's my job to hold them accountable. And that's what I think more of us need to learn to do. And yeah, you should be skeptical and you just face with government constantly being inefficient or running poorly. And you're talking to somebody who spent three hours unsuccessfully in the DMV this morning (laughs) trying to get a motorcycle titled. Third trip and I failed again. (laughs) But that's the amazing part because nobody wakes up in the morning when they have to go to DMV and is glad that they have to go to DMV. No, nobody wakes up and says, oh, yes, I get to go to DMV. (laughs) And I've never heard a single person that left DMV that said, oh, that was so wonderful. I'd love to do business with them again. I walked Same out the thing. door thinking, I want to go to the other, the competing DMV business and get my title there. <laughs> well, it's the same thing with every government, Social Security Administration, no matter what government agency you're talking about. When you have to deal with the bureaucracy, there's not one single person out there that says how painless of a process it was, how quick and efficient it was, and how it was wonderful to work with the bureaucrats. Nobody says that, and yet we're willing to give them more power. We're willing to institute more programs with giving them more control. Well, if you don't like the way they run DMV, which isn't the most complex operation in the entire world, <laughs> no. do you really want to empower them to control uh, something that's very complex in healthcare? Like, like, like all healthcare. Yeah, and that's a yeah. good analogy. You say, well, if you really want single-payer healthcare, you must really love the DMV because you're going to make healthcare be like going to the DMV. Exactly. That's you know, not uh, a good idea. And it does open people's eyes, I I think, to understand that, hey, maybe it's not always the solution isn't always government, that, hey, maybe our communities, we could have some of the solutions. 
you know, maybe we have to take personal responsibility and start realizing that not everything can be left up to government to do, that it's not their, they can't possibly handle anything and everything that we throw at them. And, and most, so at some point, we're going to have to deal with the issues ourselves. And, and so the, the, the typical, you know, I don't say everybody, but the typical student view you see, they come in thinking that the government's supposed to take care of everything, fix every problem. Is that, is that what you find? I would say a large, a large portion of them do. You know, I, w- I wouldn't say all of them, but, but a decent amount do. And once again, it's because they haven't been taught why government was designed, what government exists for. They think the they, purpose is to take care of everything. That's why you have a government, right? Well, that's what they think. And that's why our education system has failed them. And a lot of people will sit there and they'll say that, well, it's by design that our government's trying to stupefy new generations so the new generations don't ask questions. I'm like, no, you have too much faith in government. Government is not that competent where they could actually sit there and coordinate and organize the dumbing down of society. We're doing that to ourselves. And that's what we don't realize. We're not inquisitive anymore. We lost the inquisitive nature of being a human being. And I do think technology, I won't go into details, but I do think technology plays a role where if we don't know something, God forbid we pick up a book and read about it, we're just going to simply Google it. And not we're not going to question the first website that pops up. We're just going to go to that website and whatever the answer is, that's what we're going to believe. If you look at and have political arguments with people today, all they do is regurgitate a talking point that they've heard on the Internet, on social media or in the media channels. And it's not like there's any depth to that. And that's a big part of the problem. Yeah, they, they flip open their book and, you know, and go to the page. Like if somebody brings up debt, then they just open up their book and here's the page on debt and they spit out their talking point. And the con- yep. your congressman doing that. Like you can tell, well, they didn't think about this. They're just common narrative, blah, 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 blah. Oh, Yeah. Well, I, I think every member of Congress should have a con- take a constitutional test, and if they fail the test, they should be thrown out of Congress immediately. Well, most of them are attorneys, so they don't know anything about the Constitution. No. <laughs> no, do they class. care a lot. A lot of them don't care either. They say it's old or they say it's outdated. or I mean, there, there's no requirement to study the Constitution to get a law degree from Harvard. Like, no. That, that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's an elective. Yep. Dean, Unless Dean you want to go into constitutional law. Yeah, which isn't even really about the Constitution either. Right? It's about no. Supreme Court opinions. But yeah, Dean uh, Dean Kagan removed that requirement. It's it's insanity. And for people who recognize is. that name, Elena Kagan, uh, she removed the requirement to study the Constitution at Harvard Law School, and her her current job is uh, Associate Justice Supreme Court. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and it, once again, it's one of those things. If we don't know where we come from, if we don't know what the founders intended. How do we maintain it going forward? And it's it's not going to be easy. And that's why you're seeing where you go 20 years ago, the idea, any candidate talking about socialism would have been left off stage. Now it's the people that are espousing capitalism that are being left off stage. Yeah, they, they say we've got to get rid of capitalism. Yep. They have no idea what's paying them. Right? And think- it's not like they could actually describe socialism or capitalism either. That's the funny part. That's the ironic part because they talk about socialism. And then you ask them, well, wh- what are you talking about? And they'll, talk, they'll point to like Norway or Sweden or Denmark and they'll tell them, you do realize those are capitalist countries. They're, they're not socialism. They're actually capitalist countries. They're like, what are you talking about? They offer all these benefits. And I say, no, they, they offer a lot of social benefits, but they're also high tax countries that don't have militaries. 
And so they can offer those types of social benefits, but they're still capitalist countries. Their economy runs on capitalism, not socialism. Yeah, socialism is Venezuela. And then you say, well, that's not real socialism. Actually, that is real socialism. Well, it's the stupidity because think about it. I mean, you know, we see that uh, in the United States there is – it's still a low percentage, but the numbers of those that view communism favorably are increasing in the United States. And I'm just like, just logic alone. There are now only two pure communist countries today out there. Okay, China and Vietnam are quasi-communist, so they're not even pure communist countries. They have capitalist economic systems. The only pure communist societies are North Korea and Cuba. And who the hell wants to go to those places? And when you look at it, if it was so good, why did it collapse everywhere? And then they're like, huh? Oh, I get your point. So they do understand. Yeah, Cuba, it's, it's, it's right there. I mean, it's not very far. It's 100 miles from here. And you, know, you bring up Cuba and they say, well, that's not real socialism or that's a beautiful, they have beautiful education and health care there. I'm like, really? Don't you know any Cubans? I live in South yeah. Florida. There's a lot of Cubans. They're like, uh, not really. <laughs> well, their education system could be the greatest in the entire world. What good is it if you can't use it? What good is it in having an education, but the country needs doormen, so you're going to be opening yeah. a door for really, someone it, to walk into a hotel? It's really useful for how to keep a 57 Chevy on the road. Exactly. And it's a, it's a disaster. I heard an idea. Somebody said, you know, in Venezuela, they're going to start a reality TV show and they have Bernie and AOC as the house mother and father and take <laughs> some of these socialist college students down there and have them live there for a month and do a TV show. Well, it's, it's here's common what sense. Socialism, here's what socialism is. A lot of it's just common sense. You know, you, you look at a place like Cuba, you know, people say their education system is good. The reason their education system is good is because – Cubans actually read because they don't have an internet. <laughs> you know, they don't have access to online information. A lot of them don't have electricity. So they still, reading is the primary source of entertainment for a lot of them. <laughs> That's why they're smart people. They haven't taken the books away yet. It's not quite Brave New World. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they haven't gotten. To... So, yeah, I like, I like your amendment. Tie in, you know, tie in salaries to the, the budget, the deficit, yearly deficit. But the problem with that, one problem, this I'm thinking off the top of my head here, uh, they make a lot more money than just their, you know, 175K or whatever it is. Like, like they're all millionaires. So you gotta, yeah. how, do you, how do you go after that? Like, that, does that need to be part of the amendment? I don't know how to tie that in in something simple. <laughs> See, here's the, here's the difficulty with tying that in. It's not them making the money. It's their spouses that are making the money. When you're a member of Congress, you're not allowed to hold any other role. You're not allowed to make money from any yeah. other job or position. What we do see happening is the spouses, Elisha Cummings and his wife are the perfect example, where contracts will be steered towards a business the spouse may run. Um, we see that happen often. So we sh- could put in requirements that block that, that prevent that, that prevent setting up you know, third-party entities where money's funneled through You could do that, but it's difficult. I'm not going to sit here and lie. Mm -hmm. And it's also difficult when you have insider trading, essentially. Don't forget, members of Congress are dealing with bills that are going to impact markets and particular companies. And so they know how to trade the market based on that. So, you know, there's got to be limitations put into the amendment. Once again, that's what a convention of states could work out. Yeah, I see the solution. I read a study from, I, I don't remember how many years ago, four or five years ago, and they said the average congressman and senator's stock portfolio had gone up 12% the previous year. 
And like, I have a pretty good financial advisor and mine went up 3%. Like, I was like, 12% average? That's pretty good for 600 people. Something's fishy. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not Something's surprised. fishy there. <laughs> of course, I'm not surprised. It happens all the time. And, and that's where the complexities do come into place, you know, and, and don't forget, a lot of these people also made a lot of money before they ran for Congress. How, how many millionaires do you have that are running for Congress? You know, you have to be and, a millionaire to run. Well, it, the, it the, takes the chance of uh, the chance of getting elected, a chance of beating an incumbent in the House of Representatives. If you have one million is one in 200. Well, and the you scary part money, is that money, money, I don't money. think our founding fathers ever envisioned a system where members of Congress would have to work harder at raising money than they would at actually getting jobs done. They were only supposed to go for a few months, help out, and then go back to their farm, right? A volunteer position. They didn't really think about this career politician thing, right? Well, they did. They warned about it. They, they, they warned, warned about, about career politicians, but they thought that they had a system that w would take care of itself, that there were checks and balances built in. And they, I, I think a, a decent part of their assumptions were that, you know, one of the reasons that you don't see term limits is because when the Constitution was developed is the term limits were built in. It was called life expectancy. Yeah. You know? And, and you had to ride a horse to work. Yeah. At the age of 30, <laughs> well, you're serving two terms. You ain't serving more than two terms because you're going to be dead by your mid-40s. You know, and I think that, you know, there were avenues that the politicians, the founding fathers, they screwed up. They didn't put as many safeguards as they could have in place. And, and they, you know, to be fair to them, they didn't think of the idea of a 92-year-old, you know, state senator, I mean, a congressman or senator or, or Supreme Court judge. Like, that didn't occur to them. No, they didn't foresee a time where someone would be spending 50 years in a single <laughs> office. You know, yeah. and that's what we have to deal with today. So, yeah, I, I like the term. So, yes. Uh, so an amendment, you know, and uh, done by a convention of states. So the states force Congress to take some amendment that makes them fiscally financially accountable for but for going over the budget. Correct. Not just a balanced budget, but an incentive. You got to personally incentivize them. So the and idea, that's the main thing. yeah, in a convention, you got to make the rules so that it doesn't really matter if they're bad people. You got to encourage bad people to do good things. Exactly. So, yeah, and it's okay to have some debt. Like, I, it's not that I have a problem with debt. I mean, pretty much throughout our history, we've always had debt. The only president ever to pay off our debt completely was Andrew Jackson. Outside <laughs> oh, of President the Jackson, only the only one. Every other president had debt, so it's okay to have some debt. But when the debt becomes unsustainable, then it, it becomes a big problem. When it's 100% of their yearly salary, their yearly income, if you want to call government money income. Yeah. That's the wrong word. Their, well, the GDP. Their, their take. Yeah, the, the percentage of GDP is just going up and up and up and up and up. Yeah, it, it's, it's over 106% or 108%. And once again, I mean, at what point are we going to have this take this real seriously and gut entire programs. I mean, let's make the small moderate changes that we can make now as opposed to making dramatic changes later on down the road that's going to severely impact people's lives. And that's my whole thing. So, yeah, I hope a convention of states could do that, you know, could, could establish rules to force that to be gradual. Otherwise, I suspect it's going to be a catastrophe. That's the only way they're going to do anything. 100%. 
like like another housing market thing, and they're going to wait until the day it collapses to react. And that's the problem with American society that we've been living in, that we have the attention span and that's we don't look long term at anything. You know, we have a strategic vision that's like a week out where you look at places like China, it's like they got a hundred year plan. Yeah. You know, we, we have about a five minute plan. Five minute plan uh, up till 2020 at, you know, the outset. You know, and if you start talking about what's going to happen in 2021, like, what are you worrying about that for? Yeah, exactly. It's if the no, disaster is happening November 2nd, five 20... minutes, we'll deal with it. Yeah. All right. So um, how can uh, people follow you? You have a website, right? You wanna... They could go to PASReport.com. Uh, it's where they'll find my podcast, any thoughts, uh, articles that I decide to write, I put on that. Um, they could also follow me on Twitter at PASReport. That's the Twitter handle, at PASReport. And, you know, basically they see what I'm talking about on a daily basis there. And, and go up to SUNY for the young people and take a class. Absolutely. I mean, that's always the best thing. You know, when you take classes with me, you actually learn about government and its roles and responsibilities. That'd be great. You know, can we clone you? Uh, It would be good. But there are other professors, I have to say. I've met plenty of professors like myself that actually do teach the Constitution, that actually do teach the intent of the Founding Fathers and their true roles and responsibilities. So there is hope out there. I think that there are more people like me that are getting involved in academia and actually making a change. The Convention of States Action Petition is calling for altering the central government to mandate fiscal responsibility, limit the scope and jurisdiction of D.C., and establish term limits on offices beyond the president's. We have the right to alter it. We have the duty to alter it, and the founders provided a mechanism in Article 5 of the Constitution for us to do so please visit conventionofstates.com to see how to alter it to suit our needs and protect our rights, as the founders intended. conventionofstates.com We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. In order to form a more perfect union. Establish justice. Ensure domestic tranquility. Provide for the common defense. Promote the general welfare. And secure the blessings of liberty. And secure the blessings of liberty. To ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this constitution. Do ordain and establish this constitution. For the United States of America. The question facing us and facing our fellow countrymen is a two-word question. Very simply, who decides? The American founders had a simple answer. We, the people, decide.